Welcome to the third event in the Sondermann Symposium on the 2016 presidential elections. I'm Tom Cronin from the famous Department of Political Science here at Colorado College. <clears throat> Our guest, David Axelrod, is going to present the Abbott Memorial Lecture and uh, just a word or two about the origins of the Abbott Lecture. Um, Professor Lewis Abbott was a distinguished social scientist here from the 1920s through the 1949. His wife, Helen, was a distinguished local civic leader, and among many, many things she did was to uh, found and be the first president of the League of Women Voters of Colorado Springs and of Colorado. <clears throat> we are honored to have with us her daughter, Marjorie, Colorado College class of 1944, sitting in the front row here. And their granddaughter, Mar Margie McKeever, who's also sitting here. We're delighted to have you with us, representing the Abbott family. The, the purpose of the Abbott Memorial Lecture Series is to bring in distinguished social scientists and commentators and analysts on, on American political culture. It has, in previous years, brought in Arthur Schlesinger, George Will, and the Harvard political scientist uh, Robert Putnam, among others. And uh, we're honored today to have David Axelrod with us. You know him probably as the key strategist and advisor to Barack Obama, who he first met actually way back in 1992, but who he actively got involved in when, he was running, when Barack Obama was running for the U.S. Senate in 2004, and then, of course, was constantly a key strategist from there on in. Um, we know David Axelrod in this precinct, however, in a different way. Um, he's part of the extended Colorado College family. Like many of us, he married up, in his case, marrying a Colorado College graduate of the class of 1974, Susan Landauer, who was a distinguished uh, student of of religion here at the college and a student of Joe Pickles sitting in the third row here at the college. Um, but wait, there's more. David also shared his son Ethan with us who graduated about six years ago who was a political science major and a student and an advisee of many of ours. And then he also encouraged a nephew, Jesse Lurick, to come uh, to Colorado College and, uh, and he, there's even more. His administrative assistant now at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago is Allison Siegel, who's somewhere here, who's a graduate of the class of 2013. So we have you surrounded, David Axelrod. <laughs> and uh, David was inspired to get into politics when he was a young teenager in the 1960s. His senator, as your senator from New York, Bobby Kennedy, decided to run for president that year. And David was like 13 years old, if I remember correctly from his wonderful book, Believer. He was inspired by Bobby Kennedy because he felt that Bobby was a fierce and a fearless advocate of change and reform, uh, a man who, sh who helped shine a light on the suffering and injustice and poverty in America, who turned against the Vietnam War, uh, which his brother and the president had begun and managed. He challenged the war ideas and shibboleths of both political parties as he ran in 1968. And he communicated, as David writes in his book, Believer, 
a sense of urgency as he called uh, the young generation at that time to action. And David enlisted as a volunteer. David graduated from the University of Chicago, and some of you in this room may know there's another distinguished graduate of the University of Chicago who was active this year in politics a few weeks ago named Bernie Sanders. <laughs> David had the pleasure of hosting Bernie Sanders at the Institute of Politics just a few weeks ago, and he may, might want to share a word or two of that. After, after Chicago, he worked at several internships with uh, newspapers, including the, the Villager in the Greenwich Village, the Hyde Park Herald, and he had an internship with the Chicago Tribune, where he worked for another decade, writing about politics in the city of Chicago. Um, the most important thing to know about David Axelrod is that he knows politics is important, and that giving up in politics is not an option, not for presidents, not for citizens. David Axelrod, probably more than just about any commentators or pundits that I listen to, understands that politics is the indispensable heart of, re of a representative republic. He knows that uh, politics to a democracy is what the experimental method is to physics, what melody is to music, what imagination is to poetry. David, we have one simple assignment for you tonight, and that is to help us understand what the hell is going on in 2016. <laughs> Please welcome David Axelrod. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I was going to try and rebut the notion that I had married up, but since there are people here who know my wife, I can't do that. Um, professor, not pr professor, president, for me to mislabel a president is a bad thing. Pres pre president Tiefenthaler, uh, the Abbott family, the Sonderman family, uh, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to come back. It is, in fact, a bit of a homecoming uh, for me. We spent a lot of, Susan and I spent a lot of time here when our son uh, was here uh, a few years back. In fact, uh, I was deeply resentful when he chose to graduate uh, <laughs> because I knew it meant that I wouldn't be able to come back as often. But um, he insisted. Um, but Colorado College had a profound impact on his life, on the life of my wife, on the life of my nephew. All of them would uh, speak of this place as a transformative experience uh, in their lives. So when the invitation came to come here, um, I was uh, eager to accept it. Um, not necessarily to try and explain what the hell is going on. In fact, I was gratified that you invited me because I was the genius who said that Trump would be gone by winter and Bernie would be gone by spring. So, so for that reason, I'm going to defer discussion of the election until a little bit later uh, in my remarks. And I want to tell you um, why I enjoy speaking not just on this campus and, uh, but on other campuses and why I chose after the 2012 campaign to start the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Um, one of the most uh, 
energizing elements of being involved in campaigns, and particularly those Obama campaigns, was my association with young people all over this country. And what I came to realize is that uh, this generation of young people, perhaps because of the experiences they've had going through the Great Recession um, and some of the other turmoil that we've experienced, uh, has emerged as one of the most public-spirited generations, perhaps the most public-spirited generation since uh, uh, I was a kid. And um, I find myself in times that are often discouraging uh, or where our politics is discouraging to be uh, uplifted by being around uh, young people who want to change the world and see their responsibility and want to fulfill it. Uh, but what they don't necessarily see and now I'm, there are, I know there are some, there are a lot of young at heart people here and there are some young people here as well um, who can speak to that. I don't, I don't need to tell you what you uh, feel, but you know, my experience has been at the University of Chicago. When I talk to young people uh, and I say, well, we've got this problem that we need to solve, their first instinct is to say, well, let's create an app. You know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's use social media. Let's uh, organize folks on Facebook. These are, we laugh, but these are powerful tools. These are the tools of the 21st century. These are the tools that helped elect Barack Obama uh, president uh, and reelect him as president. But I'm here to tell you it's not enough. And this is the dis ongoing discussion I have with the students with whom I interact in, uh, in Chicago and around the country. It, it's not enough because um, while you have every right to be skeptical about politics. Um, you can't turn your back on it. You can't turn your back on it because whatever equity you care about, whether it's climate change or, or human rights or inequality uh, or, uh, or from the conservative perspective, uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal responsibility and other issues, whatever you care about, uh, the decisions that are made every single day in Washington and in state capitals and in city halls around the country are going to impact profoundly on the things that you uh, care about. So you, uh, if you turn your back on this process and if you turn your back on that, you're really ceding the responsibility for making these decisions to people who you don't necessarily want to be making uh, those decisions. And that's why um, I feel so strongly sort of evangelical about uh, politics. Um, Tom mentioned that I wrote a book called Believer. That was my memoirs of 40 years uh, in politics. Um, and I started very young. Uh, I was five. <laughs> and uh, John F. Kennedy was campaigning for president in New York City 12 days before the 1960 election, and you can tell how long ago that was that a Democrat was actually campaigning in New York 12 days before uh, an election, but New York was actually a swing state at the time. He was running against Richard Nixon, and he came to the uh, housing development where I grew up in Manhattan called Stuyvesant Town. I don't know if any of you are familiar uh, with it, but st go ahead. You go, give it a, yeah, that's... It's a great housing development. Uh, it was actually built for returning war veterans 
after World War II, and a lot of young families uh, moved in there, including mine. And on this day, uh, the woman who took care of me when my mother was at work heard that JFK was coming. She was a splendid woman, African-American woman named Jessie Berry. Um, she had left the South when she was 16. She had very little formal education. And she took care of other people's children so that she could take care of her own. And she thought it would be uh, important for me to see uh, this event. She also may have thought it was a good way to occupy a little of my time. I was a little bit of a handful uh, back then. But she took me out in, uh, to 20th Street, which is this huge boulevard in New York City. Uh, and uh, it was usually filled with traffic all the time. Uh, and now it was filled with people. And she put me on top of a mailbox. The mailbo mailbox is still there. When I, my book came out, I did a thing with the CBS Sunday morning, and they took me back to the mailbox to talk about that. Um, I didn't leap on top of it, however. And from there, um, I saw this incredible spectacle. This uh, very charismatic young man jumped up on the stage and began talking about the country. Uh, his voice was booming off of these buildings. And everybody paid rapt attention. And even though I couldn't quite understand uh, what he was saying, I understood that it seemed very important, that it seemed very meaningful. Just the fact that the street had been closed down spoke to that. Uh, and one of the things that he said that day was, I don't run on the platform that says, if you elect me, everything will be easy. He said, being an American citizen in the 1960s is a hazardous occupation filled with peril, but also hope. And we'll decide uh, in this election which path we want to take. Uh, and that pretty much summarizes my view of what politics is about. Politics is the way in which we can grab the wheel of history and turn it in the direction we feel uh, is best. Uh, his brother, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who Tom mentioned, uh, was one of my early political heroes, uh, said it more succinctly. He said, the future is not a gift, it's an achievement. We've got to work for the future that we want. Um, and by the way, I did go to work for Bobby Kennedy when I was nine, <laughs> not 13, nine in New York. I was not the strategist for that campaign. <laughs> I was a field guy handing out leaflets in Stuyvesant Town. Uh, but, um, uh, but I worked in campaigns throughout my childhood. And then I went to the University of Chicago because I thought it would be a very interesting political town. And there were other reasons. It was also 600 miles away from New York, so I knew that my parents would never surprise me with a visit. <laughs> but I was interested in going there because it was the home of the last of the big city machines. They had had this very calamitous convention there, Democratic Convention in 1968, which was historic uh, in its uh, mayhem and really defined the era in many ways, the anti-Vietnam uh, protests uh, there. Um, and, um, and the University of Chicago was situated on the south side where there was this budding black independent political movement that intrigued me. And, uh, but when I got to the university, um, what I discovered was that nobody really wanted to talk about stuff that happened after the year 1800. Um, so as a result, I became a newspaper reporter. I started, while I was a student, I started writing about politics in Chicago, scammed myself a political column at a little local newspaper, got a job at the Chicago Tribune. As Tom mentioned, spent 
uh, eight years at the Tribune, um, and I was the political editor there. I was the city hall bureau chief and got a wonderful education there about politics at every level and about life. Um, and then in, 19, in, in, in 1984, a fellow named Paul Simon, who was a congressman from downstate Illinois, uh, approached me about going to work for him. And I resisted and I resisted. Um, and then I finally gave in, in part because I was worried about where the newspaper business was headed. And in part because Paul Simon was exactly the kind of politician who I wanted to work for. I don't know if any of you remember Paul, uh, but he had, yeah, he deserves a big hand. Stuyvesant Town is good, but Paula was even better. Um, you know, he, had, he was a one of a kind. He, had, he wore bow ties, and he had big uh, horn rim glasses and large, big ears. We used to talk about Paul Simon's plan for global domination. Uh, <laughs> but Paul was, uh, he was an exemplary guy. He, when he was 19 years old, he left college, and bought a small newspaper in downstate state Illinois and used it to crusade against a crime syndicate down there. And when he couldn't find anyone to run against them, he ran for the legislature, and he got elected in his early 20s. And in the 1950s, he uh, crusaded in the Illinois legislature for political reform, which was hard to do, and for civil rights coming from a district that was closer to Little Rock than Chicago. Uh, and uh, I really admired him. Uh, he was a believer. He believed that politics was the way to build uh, a better future. And so uh, I ended up managing his campaign. He got elected to the Senate. I started a political consulting firm and did 150 campaigns after that. Um, and um, along the way, I, I, I met Barack Obama. A, young, a woman in Chicago called me. Uh, named Betty Lou Saltzman, a great friend of mine from Democratic politics there. She said, I just met this really impressive young man. I think you ought to meet him. Uh, and I said, well, why do you think I, I'll meet anybody you want? But why? She said, this is 1992. She said, I think he could be the, the first black president of the United States. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I, now I take Betty Lou to the track with me whenever I go. Uh, she obviously has a gift. And we had a long association. Uh, I didn't really go to work with Obama until 2002. Two, as, as uh, Tom mentioned, uh, toward a 2004 uh, campaign. And I'm not going to rehearse that campaign. Uh, I will tell you a few things about it. One is that um, uh, early on in our association, that same woman, Betty Lou, asked him to speak at an anti-war rally, an anti-Iraq war rally that was before the Senate was actually voting on it. And it's hard to remember, but that was a very popular vote at the time. And uh, uh, Obama, uh, and he, you know, uh, there were people on our call who said, you shouldn't, you know, this is too risky. And he said, yeah, well, here's the thing, I don't believe this is a smart idea. And so I'm going to go. And he went and he made this speech. You can find it on Google. By the way, Google is where I found what JFK said in 1960. I didn't remember it from when I was five years old. <laughs> I feel like I should fess up about that. <laughs> but what you'll find is that what Obama said in, that, in the federal square in Chicago in 2002 was he feared a war of undetermined cost, undetermined length, and undetermined consequences that would unleash civil war uh, in the region and would make America the focus of terrorism. 
a greater focus of terrorism. And he could, you know, he could not have been more prescient. He was a state senator in Illinois at the time. Um, and there were other things that I learned about him, about his unbelievable sense of comfort in any room in which he, he went, whether it was a, a VFW hall in downstate Illinois, where he talked about his grandfather who marched in Patton's army and his grandmother who was a Rosie the Riveter or an inner city church or in a Tony's suburban parlor. He just took people as they came. And it was a wonderful gift at a time when our country was becoming more and more divided. And then, of course, you all remember his convention speech in 2004, something that he wrote on little scraps of paper as he was traveling around Illinois campaigning for the U.S. Senate and serving in the state Senate. He'd go into the men's room and he'd write stuff down, and then he pulled it all together. And it was um, one of the great convention speeches of all time. And I realized this guy had great gifts, and then, you know, little by little he got drawn to the presidential race in 2008. Um, and when we, what we didn't anticipate when he ran was what we would find when we got there. We didn't realize that he would be called upon to preside over the uh, greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. In fact, early in the administration, uh, we were traveling, and I said sort of idly to him, gee, I wonder what it would be like to be here if times were good. And he, pat he smiled and patted me on the back, and he said, don't kid yourself, brother. If times were good, we wouldn't be here. Reminds me of that uh, Onion headline, Black Man Gets Worst Job in America. <laughs> but I saw him make um, a series of decisions early in the administration, each of which were as difficult uh, politically as they were necessary to, um, uh, to pass a recovery act at a time when the country was deeply concerned about deficits uh, to, uh, to intervene uh, to, to save the uh, financial structure from collapsing, which is still uh, still a source of uh, debate, uh, even within the Democratic Party, um, and then his his decision intervened to save the American auto industry, which seems like a no-brainer now, but was really unpopular then, even in the state of Michigan. But I want to talk uh, about one decision he made uh, that I think sums up who he is and sums up what I believe about politics, and that is the decision to um, move forward on health care. Uh, and as you know, it was a very fraught decision. Um, and I was his political advisor. I was very cross-pressured because I have a young, uh, I had a, a daughter. She's now 35 years old, so she's not young anymore. But when she was seven months old, she started having seizures. We thought it was a transient thing. They told us it would pass probably related to a fever. They released us from the hospital ten, uh, about a month later, and she was still having 10 seizures a day. Uh, and uh, she went through hell for 19, 18, 19 years where we couldn't stop the seizures. Tons of medications, surgeries, brain surgery, draconian diets, and it was a nightmare. And in the midst of that, I almost went bankrupt as a young reporter because insurance didn't pay for these medications, which were very expensive, and we were paying $1,000 a month out of pocket, and I was making $38,000 a year. Uh, so I didn't need any primer on uh, why we needed to reform the healthcare system, but my job was to look after him and his political well-being. And I said, you know, seven presidents have tried and seven presidents have failed, and um, uh, this is a very, very difficult issue. And I had I was fluent in all the research on why. Um, and 
he said, look, I, I hear you, but if we don't do this in the first two years, it's not going to get done. And if it doesn't get done, uh, the system's going to continue uh, to spin out of control, tens of millions more people without insurance, uh, government will feel the burden of that, businesses and families, and it will all implode. Uh, and he, he, he paused and he said, what are we here for? Are we supposed to put our approval rating on the shelf and admire it for eight years? Or are we supposed to do something to try and uh, build a better future for people? And um, uh, so we went forward, and it was as difficult as I feared, and you all remember it, and you probably, some of you may have witnessed some of the, uh, the demonstrations that ensued. Uh, in the summer of 2009, I went into his office at that time and I had polling data, not to try and dissuade him because once he decided I was all in, but just to let him know how things were going out there. And I, um, uh, and I, uh, I said, look, we're, we're really taking on water. And he said, I know, but I just, uh, I just met a young woman in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, who's 36 years old, two children, a husband, and... Um, now, and they both, they have insurance, but now she has stage four breast cancer and she's hitting her limits, her lifetime limits. And she's terrified that she's gonna die and leave her family bankrupt. By now I heard him pushing me out of his office. I felt him pushing me out of his office and he said, and he stopped and he said, that's not the country we believe in, so let's just keep fighting. And a few weeks later, someone tried to talk him in one of our meetings into sort of putting his cards down on this. And he turned to Phil Shalero, who was his legislative director. He said, Phil, what do you think the odds of passing this bill are? And Phil said, well, it depends how lucky you feel, Mr. President. Probably not the answer the president was looking for. And uh, he just smiled and said, Phil, I'm a black guy named Barack Obama, and I'm president of the United States. <laughs> he said, I feel lucky every day. And uh, he pushed and he pushed, and finally in March of 2010, when the final vote was coming in in the House on the bill, um, he, um, uh, we were all together in the Roosevelt Room, which is the conference room across from the Oval Office. My office was right next to his. And as the final vote came in, I found myself sort of almost uh, without control, you know, getting up and going into my office, closing the door, and I just, uh, and I just uh, broke out crying. And I uh, couldn't even understand my own reaction for a while. I was thinking about it. And I realized the reason that I was so emotional was that I remembered what we had gone through as a family. And I knew that because of what he had done and what we had done to help him, what many of you in this room did to help him get elected, uh, there were a lot of families in this country who wouldn't have to go through the, the, the terror that my family went through trying to balance uh, a budget and keep our child alive and, and, and relatively healthy. Um, and um, I went and I found him and I said, Mr. President, I want to thank you for, uh, for this and on behalf of all those families like mine who won't have to deal with this. And um, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, um, that's why we do the work. And that was a simple sentence, but so profound. That's why we do the work. And so in this very difficult election year, I wanted to remind everyone here why we do this work. That camp, these campaigns are not about whether the red team wins or the blue team wins. 
It's about what we can do together to help make this a better country, a fairer country, a more just uh, country. Um, and I know that it has been a dispiriting time in our politics. We've seen the emergence of a Republican candidate in Donald Trump uh, who has exploited uh, fear and resentment uh, and anger uh, to become the Republican nominee. Um, and some of that anger, we should note, is very justified. We've had profound changes in our economy that have left many people behind. Uh, and this is the fundamental issue of our time. This is really what our election should be about. Uh, how are we going to keep faith with our creed as, as a, a country where if you work hard, you can get ahead uh, with economic forces that are making us more and more unequal, that, are, uh, uh, that, that have seen uh, 10 or 20% of Americans do very, very well, while 80% struggle uh, to keep up many falling behind. It's no accident that Trump's core support is among people who have been most disadvantaged in this economy, non-college educated uh, voters uh, who have seen middle class jobs disappear over time. Uh, he's exploited their uh, loss. That's what Make America Great Again is all about. He just hasn't offered uh, a, a legitimate answer to them. And in fact, what he's done is worse. He's uh, taken those, that sense of loss and resentment, and he's created false enemies, uh, like the immigrant. Uh, and, um, you know, I, there's a bit, been a big debate about whether he is a, he's a racist. And it reminded me of an old story uh, about one of my old clients, Harold Washington, who was the mayor of Chicago. Yeah, Harold's, Harold deserves applause, too. Yeah. Great man, but Harold, Harold faced, in he was the first black mayor of Chicago, and he faced uh, this intractable opposition among the white aldermen in the city. There were two guys, one named Verdoliak and the, the other named Burke, who opposed him. And I said, why are you always going after Verdoliak but not Burke? He said, well, I think, um, he said, because I think Burke actually may be a racist. I think he may have been raised that way. Um, now, it turns, he, he didn't live to see Ed um, uh, adopt a, a black child who had been abandoned by his mother um, and who, uh, who uh, suffered from the effects of drugs uh, in utero, uh, and he raised him into a splendid uh, young man. But that aside, uh, he said, I can deal with that honest racism. He said, I don't like it. I'll oppose it. But I understand it. He said, the other guy's not a racist. He's an opportunist who's using race. And he said, and that's even more offensive to me. I think Donald Trump has used race in this election in ways that are really deplorable. Uh, and I think that they are self-limiting. Uh, because I don't, in a country that is becoming increasingly diverse, and you know, just to put it in perspective, 26% of the vote was a, a minority vote, black, Hispanic, and Asian in 2008 when Barack Obama got elected. 28% uh, of the vote in 2012 was black, Hispanic, and Asian, with the, the biggest rising share being among Hispanics. And that's expected to rise to 30% in this election. If you wall yourself off from that uh, 
large number of American voters, and wall, I guess, is the right, <laughs> right term to use. Um, it's very hard to win, particularly at a time when uh, uh, college-educated white voters are fleeing uh, from Trump, uh, kind of horrified by the tenor and tone of his campaign, worried about whether he's temperamentally suited for the presidency. Mitt Romney won that vote by 14% in losing in 2012. Uh, 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 Trump is, uh, is trailing in some polls by as much as 14%. Uh, and so uh, he's got major obstacles uh, in this election. That said, the, uh, Hillary Clinton, um, who I know well and uh, who is a, a bright and accomplished person uh, who's been in public life for many years, um, also bears the scars of being an accomplished person who's been in public life for many years, which is to say... Uh, that in a year when people are hungering for change, in a year when people are tired of, uh, of the politics that they've become accustomed to in Washington, um, she is easily depicted as an exemplar of those politics. And she's suffered for it, and she's exacerbated it, uh, obviously, with this email controversy that has um, uh, irritated a vulnerability uh, about trust. All of this is, uh, guarantees us, I think, a, a very, very negative campaign in the coming months. Uh, and um, I don't say that with any particular glee, but I don't see any other uh, way because you've got two candidates who are the two, the, the least popular candidates uh, in, uh, in American political history in a presidential, at least since we've been measuring them. And so the, uh, the obvious... Uh, place to go is to make the case uh, against the other person. By the way, I should have said parenthetically, one interesting development here is to see how these battleground states are changing, including Colorado. When you consider how Trump has alienated large numbers of minority voters, particularly Hispanics, and, um, and these college-educated, mostly suburban white voters, you can see why in a state like Colorado he would, he would be a very, very... Uh, challenged candidate. And it's one of the reasons why this state is no longer considered a primary battleground. Um, but uh, for those of you who are supporting uh, Secretary Clinton, I would counsel vigilance. Um, one of the things that makes me uh, nervous from her perspective are these stories about how you know, uh, her advisors are suggesting a landslide uh, because I think one of the dangers here is that if voters who aren't terribly enthused about voting for her think the race is over, they may not vote for her, and they may not vote at all, or they may vote for uh, third-party candidates. And I bet you there are people in this room, uh, particularly young people, who are tempted to do just that, vote for some of these, uh, vote for the Libertarian candidate, vote for the Green Party candidate. Um, and, and here's what I uh, would say about that. Um, I remember the campaign of 2000, and many of you may remember it as well, when history will uh, record that Al Gore lost the presidency, even as he carried the country, by a margin of 537 votes in the state of Florida. In that same election, 90,000 voters voted for Ralph Nader uh, because they felt that Gore was insufficiently uh, progressive, that he wasn't... Um, 
that he was too much a part of the political establishment. What we all know the history that followed. Um, we had a two trillion dollar projected 10 year surplus when Bill Clinton left office that was squandered mostly on tax cuts for people who Barack Obama used to say uh, didn't need them and weren't even asking for them. Uh, and what made that more shameful was um, uh, we continued down that road even at a time of war. And the war itself would not have happened uh, if uh, 538 people uh, among those 90,000 who had voted for Ralph Nader or among those who didn't vote at all had decided this is worth five minutes of my time and I'm going to make, a, I'm going to cast a meaningful vote uh, in this election. We would have been light years ahead on the issue of climate change had Al Gore won the 2000 election. <laughs> Instead, we took a step backwards and now we're playing catch up in this perilous game of, uh, and, and uh, you know, one fears um, that, you know, we're approaching the time when it's too late, despite the efforts of the administration and steps we might take uh, in the future. I was on a TV show, I was, before I moved over to CNN, I was on a TV show with, uh, on the uh, Morning Joe show, and it was a night of, it was a day of the President's State of the Union speech. And uh, Joe Scarborough said to me, why is the president talking about climate change? It's only the sixth issue in our, of concern in the uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll. And I said, you know, I thought to myself, I just had had my first grandchild. And I'm thinking, she's going to be alive, God willing, at the end of this century when the scientists tell us this planet will be largely degraded uh, if we don't act. And what am I supposed to do, tell her from the grave that we would have done something about it, but the Wall Street Journal NBC poll wasn't good enough? <laughs> so there were a lot of consequences to that election. I think that may have been one of the most consequential elections in American history. We'll be living with the impact of that election for generations uh, to come. I also lived through the 1960 election, as I mentioned, uh, and... Um, you know, I think of that woman, Jessie Berry, that wonderful woman who took me out there. She had a, a very challenging life. Uh, she left South Carolina at a time when you could be killed just for trying to vote. Uh, and, um, uh, and she suffered all the depredations that come with withering discrimination. Uh, and she took me out there that day, not just for my benefit and not just to occupy a kid with uh, what would become known as ADD. She took me out there because she had a sense that this young man who was running for president of the United States could help, could make it better. And you know what? He, he got elected, and tragically he was killed. But in the course of the, the following years, the work that he began on a civil rights bill and on voting rights and some of the other uh, really landmark steps forward in this country became a reality because he won, and he won by 100,000 votes uh, in this country. President Obama likes to talk about, uh, he, he likes to quote Martin Luther King as saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so let me finish by just urging uh, the young people here and everyone else uh, to grab that arc and bend it toward justice, to grab the wheel of history and steer it. Uh, we cannot walk away. 
If we walk away, we're failing that test that Bobby Kennedy set for us. We're not achieving the future. We're allowing the future to unfold in ways that we'll deeply regret. Um, so with that, I'm, I'm happy to take any questions you have. Thank you. There are microphones here, so please uh, step forward if you have. I may have I may have taught you into submission. I don't know. Someone's got to be the brave first question, and there you are. Hello. Um, I was just in Europe during the summer and watching the wave of populism with yes. the rise of Marie Le Pen and the Front National in Fr France and Brexit in the UK. Coming back, I can't help to, but see that reflected in the increasing muscular nativism that seems to be the core of Trump's appeal. As anger politics and fear and racism is a part of our public discourse, I wanted to hear your thoughts on if the rise of populism and nativism, as some say, is a rallying cry against an elitist system that is no longer representative of its people, or if it's a dangerous turn and a threat to a democratic system. Well, it could be both, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, to hear I hear in your question a hint of your own view. <laughs> and, and it's a view that I share. I, I'm deeply concerned about this. I worked um, not very successfully. You know, I'm out of campaigns in America. I was asked to uh, do some consulting in Britain in 2015 in their election. Um, I watched Nigel Farage and the UKIP party rise. Uh, I saw David Cameron embrace some of their ideas and rhetoric in order to get reelected, and then he was, uh, of course, swept up in his own scheme with Brexit. Um, you know, and yes, I, we see what's happened in France, we've seen what's happened in Austria, and just this past weekend, uh, the right, a right-wing regional party in Germany uh, had a big victory. So this is not an isolated thing. Donald Trump is not, um, despite what he may think, sui generis. Okay? He's a symptom of something larger. And I think it goes back to what I said before. We have gone through a period of revolutionary change in our economy, in all of our economies, all the developed nations uh, that has seen... Um, you know, aggregation of great wealth that has seen um, good middle-class jobs uh, disappear and uh, has created uh, a, uh, a sense of, um, of, of resentment and, and a sense of betrayal uh, that, are easy, that is ex easily exploited. Now, there are other elements, certainly in our own politics, the ad, you know, the, uh, we were talking about this earlier, cable television, of which I'm a part, so I thought I'd say it before someone else here did. Uh, I try to be a voice of reason but, um, there. But, uh, you know, the, the, the balkanization of people's, uh, you know, viewing and listening and reading habits. Um, so instead of uh, now, now news, rather than informing, too often affirms what people already believe. And people seek out those news sources, news sources that, they, that will affirm their points of view, and they have become rallying points. Uh, uh, look at Fox, for example, for some of this politics uh, of resentment, just as some of the some of the media outlets on the left have have, have had their own impact. Um, 
so there are a lot of elements to this, but the economic element is primary. And, um, you know, I think we have, uh, the thing that concerns me more than anything else is that we're not having a serious discussion about this. I don't believe, and, and this is where I probably would take issue with um, some, of, some in this audience, uh, young and old, I don't think we can turn the clock back. I don't think we can make America great again by pretending it's 1950. The fact is that we are an integrated world. Technology uh, has assured that. And what we need to do is, 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 is think about ways in which we can create um, uh, opportunities for the broadest number of people uh, in this new economy. And we need to invest in that. Um, one of my, now, I'm sorry, you're being very patient. I promise you before midnight I will get to you. <laughs> but she got me going here. Um, you know, uh, my, f I'm from Illinois, the land of Lincoln. And I, yeah, Lincoln deserves some applause too. <laughs> but you know what, we, we applaud Lincoln because he was the great emancipator. We applaud him because he led us through the Civil War. The reason I have such a high regard for Lincoln is that in the midst of all of this, and I know there are historians in the room who can speak speak to this more eloquently than me. Than me or just I? There are probably English professors here <laughs> who could, probably I, huh? Um, but in the midst of the war, Lincoln uh, laid the groundwork for the Transcontinental Railroad. He, uh, he signed the bill for land-grant colleges so that higher education wouldn't be the province of just the wealthy. Uh, he started the National Science Foundation because he knew that science and technology and innovation was going to be a key to economic growth in the future. And he did it in the middle of the Civil War. And we can't even pass a basic infrastructure program. Um, so, you know, um, we just need to really focus on these issues because we may get past this election. I would bet that Hillary Clinton wins this election, uh, although I... I guess I'm not betting with any of you. Um, so, um, but, but I, I, I worry about what the next four years are going to be like. She's going to come to office with the highest negatives of any president entering office. You're going to have a, a, a Republican Party that from the moment she gets there is going to be plotting its return, just as they did with Barack Obama. But she's going to be in a weakened state. And, you know, the the opportunity for cooperation, I fear, is not going to be great. So this whole debate will be deferred for four years. People will be angrier. We'll see some of these same forces uh, emerge. Um, this is a source of concern. So we've got to change the dialogue and change the focus. Um, and we can't give up. That's my point. We cannot give up. Giving up is catastrophic. We have to keep fighting, you know, and trying to grab the wheel and turn it. Um, and it may take a while, but, and the way, and the biggest challenge is that one, the one that you identified, or is that, or the one that I'm imputing to you, uh, so that I could talk about it. Thank you. Sure. Yes, sir. Hi, Mr. Axelrod. I cut my cable a long time ago, but I do catch some Morning Joe on YouTube, and I'm refreshed when I see you there, so, um, I, I appreciate your work on the show. Um, when you were talking about the 2000 election, it seemed a bit to me 
a convenient characterization to blame the war and climate issues spinning out of control and the economy on 550-some-odd people who voted their conscience in that election. Now, I'm a person who's not terribly satisfied with the two party options mm -hmm. that we have in this election. And I guess one of those young people who might be tempted to uh, turn to a third party. So my question is, is there room in a climate such as this for a young person like myself <laughs> to vote their conscience? Or is what you're saying that that's a waste of time? Well, let me say this. I'm not blaming the 500 and... I'm blaming, uh, I'm blaming the people who didn't vote at all. I'm blaming, and I am, and I am, yes, I'm blaming the 90,000 people who cast a vote that may, may, that they may have considered a vote of conscience, but I don't think it's at all unreasonable to suggest that um, we would have had dramatically different policies if Gore had been elected. I don't believe that Al Gore would have uh, reacted to an attack from Afghanistan by attacking Iraq. I don't think that would have happened. Uh, I don't think it, and I know because, I know because it's his passion, I know that he would have been much more aggressive on the issue of climate change. I mean, it's the cause of his life. And I agree. I agree okay, on those but so, so it depends on how you define what a vote of conscience is. If your conscience if your conscience um, would be um, pacified if um, uh, you cast uh, one of those votes and, and Donald Trump became president as a, as a result of the vote that you and others cast. Because my point is every vote does count. Uh, if, if you could live with that, and you know, then, then uh, you've got to do where your conscience leads you. I think that a conscience vote in this election may require a different decision. Okay. All right, now you're pandering. You've got a yeah, Cubs hat on. I, I had to think. Yes. David, I, I, want to hear, I, I once met you back in the middle late, uh, 80s, back in Chicago, and uh, I realized at that time how much you believed in democracy. Now, it was just passing, but you've restated it here very well. But I frame this because I really want to ask you a tough question in a and it's, I think, something pretty big. I'm sorry. Um, in April 2009, President Obama was speaking with the uh, CEOs of Wall Street and said that it's between us, the administration, and the pitchforks, right? And then in 2013, President Carter said that we uh, don't have a functioning democracy, or potentially. And Al Gore reiterated that by saying that uh, participating democracy no longer is working. And then just recently, last year, again, President Carter said, we've become an oligarchy instead of a democracy. Now, But the Cubs are in first place. They are. <laughs> and the last time was in 2008. So, um, Look, we have challenges in our democracy. The, 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 the amount of money that flows into these campaigns and the, that were, was ripped open by the Supreme Court in the Citizens United decision is obscene. And uh, I mean, there's just no, but just to, just to, the, to my young uh, friend who asked the last question, 
Um, we, uh, one thing that's clearly on the ballot in this election is the Supreme Court. And um, if there's any reconsideration of uh, Citizens United to be had, um, it'll probably be determined by the outcome uh, of this election. So, look, I, 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 but I don't deny uh, any of that. And by the way, what the president was saying, I think, has been borne out because um, the pitchforks he was speaking about, he was speaking about, was were the the people this young lady was asking about just a while ago. And and I think, and I would be very, I, I'm I'm very reticent about being too critical because I know um, that there there um, that some of that anger and resentment is born out of this very legitimate sense of loss uh, that we haven't addressed. But, um, yeah, we have problems um, in our system, and there are problems all over the world uh, in, in these systems. And if, if, there is, if anyone has a better idea about how we should attack them or approach them other than democracy, other than just fighting back and fighting back relentlessly, I'd like to know what they are. I, I will tell you this. I'm the son of an immigrant. Uh, my father fled Eastern Europe when he was 12 years old. Um, and um, uh, I, I went with the president to uh, Russia in 2009, and I stood there in Red Square, and I heard um, the uh, army band play our national anthem. We all stood in this. And uh, it would have been, it was on the eve of what would have been my father's 99th birthday. And I found myself standing there thinking about everything they went through to come to America and why. And here I was, one generation later, returning as the senior advisor to the President of the United States. We've got a lot of problems in this country, and, there's, and, 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 the, 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 and some of those problems are happening in dark corners where, no, where, where those of us who are privileged uh, don't want to look. Uh, and I recognize that. But I also think we shouldn't shortchange what we do have, because if we do, we're going to degrade it in ways that we'll, we'll, uh, that we'll deeply regret. So, so you're um, saying still vote. But anyway, can we just end on a go Cubs and... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to thank you so much for coming in talking to us. Uh, Thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, me was very inspired by your speech. Uh, I was very inspired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, my, question, my question is this. Uh, I, I, uh, the message of being a believer speaks very strongly to me. Um, it seems like in our time, uh, national borders are becoming maybe less relevant and um, does your does your position of what it means to be a believer uh, change in the future in a, glo a more global world uh, or is the best way to still uh, be a believer you know engage in local and national politics well look I think that uh, the way we um, the way that we have to move forward and the way we should move forward is equip our people with um, the tools they need 
um, to make the most of their lives in this new economy, um, I think that that will require um, not just their individual effort, but our effort as a country to create, to help create those opportunities uh, for people. I think that's where believers need to go uh, in the future, just as Lincoln saw the future and uh, envisioned things that others uh, didn't see or didn't see as, impo as, as important as he did. Um, I think we need to envision the future and ask ourselves, what are the things that we need to do uh, to, um, uh, to present people uh, with a fair chance uh, in, in this new economy? Um, I think that's a noble project, you know, and I think it's one we need to give serious thought to. One of the, one of the, one of the problems is that um, it's not something that yields to instant gratification. It's not something that yields to um, uh, bumper stickers. And I mean, this, this is a long-term project. How do we retool our education system? Uh, you know, how do we create um, income supports for people who are uh, going in transitional uh, jobs? How do, you know, there are a million questions that we need to explore if we're going to do this intelligently. But I think there's plenty of work for believers to do. Uh, the one thing I just can't abide is not, is not believing that we can make a difference. Uh, and uh, so, um, so I choose to believe. Yes. Hi, David. My name is Ray, and I first of all want to say what an honor it is for you to be here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I've heard you in many interviews um, critiquing the Cheney-esque uh, foreign policy of an interventionist policy. Um, however, in this election, we're in a bit of a unique situation where the Democratic nominee is more of a war hawk and the Republican nominee is, for lack of a better word, an isolationist. And so I want to know which policy you find to be more dangerous and why. Well, first of all, I'm, you are better than I if you can discern what the Republican candidate's <laughs> policy is. <laughs> I mean, I heard him say, I'm going to bomb the shit out of him. Okay? That doesn't sound like a non-interventionist policy to me. Um, you know, what concerns me, uh, look, I understand, I, I was on the other side of a race in 2008, and part of the reason uh, I was as motivated as I was was the war. Um, and I, um, I understand your, your concerns. I also spent two years sitting next to a president of the United States, dealing, watching him deal with a real-life uh, kind of crises that we felt. And this president has done a lot to, I mean, we had 180,000 troops overseas when he took office. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a really rough uh, road to hoe to try and restore some sense of balance. Um, you know, the Iran debate was another reflection of that. Um, but what I know is that um, what presidents say can send armies marching and markets tumbling. And, um, You'd better have someone there who has the discretion uh, to, um, to understand that and to make thoughtful uh, decisions. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, I was um, heartened. I thought uh, that Hillary made a, a great decision when she um, chose um, Tim Kaine. And one of the reasons is that Tim has been a thoughtful critic, even of this administration, on war policy, fighting to have the war policy 
to have the uh, War Powers Act uh, enforced on, on, in some of the actions that are going on right now. So my hope is that the balance of people around will um, will, will uh, um, bring a thoughtful policy, and I have no doubt that she will uh, exercise the kind of discretion that the other guy seems incapable of mustering. Yes. Thank you, by the way. Hi, I'm, I'm very nervous, so I'm gonna try and Don't be nervous. Like, speak English to you. Um, thank you for being here, first of all. It's What's your name? such an honor. I'm Izzy. Where are you from? I'm from Boulder, Colorado. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's the center of the universe, right there. <laughs> no joke. Um, so I spent the summer registering voters in Colorado, um, particularly young voters, and saw the particular challenges of even getting people registered to vote, and the, um, uh, yeah, just the challenges posed by not only getting people to be interested to register, but also the institutional challenges that make it so hard um, to make people's votes count. And um, I was wondering if you could respond to the recent, not necessarily recent in our history, but recent for right now, wave of incredibly discriminatory voter ID and election access laws that we see being fought time and time again in this country only months before the election. Right. Um, and you, you spoke about um, that we have to fight relent relentlessly as active democratic, democratic excuse me, democratically engaged citizens. And I was just wondering if you could explain more um, concretely what that would look like. Well, look, you know, you raise, a, you, raise a, you raise a good example on the voter ID laws. Um, they're horrendous. They're discriminatory. They're fundamentally anti-American. And they're cynical uh, beyond uh, description. But the good news is that they're falling all over this country. People have waged war against these discriminatory, pra discriminatory practices. The courts all over the country have uh, upheld those uh, fights. We're making inroads uh, all the time in repelling uh, those, uh, those acts uh, of legislatures and governors to try and, you know, Donald Trump likes to talk about a rigged political system, but what could be uh, more obvious than uh, an attempt to keep large numbers of people from voting. Uh, you know, so w those fights are being won. One thing I will tell you, though, is that um, they're being won in part because the Supreme Court has been deadlocked and hasn't intervened uh, on, these, uh, on these points. So, you know, I come back to the point I made before. Elections do have consequences. And um, those laws could be, the laws that are now not being upheld could be upheld if the Supreme Court takes a, a, a turn to the right uh, in this election. So in that sense, um, when you're talking to folks who are wondering whether it matters, it matters. And that's a prime example of it, and I think you should raise it. So thank you. Thank you. No, what? it's Come not on. a question. It's a stop talking. One last question for David. Four years ago this month, Barack Obama debated Mitt Romney Ooh. in Denver. Yeah. Uh, a memory you perhaps uh, I vaguely like remember that. Wipe out. <laughs> Obama did poorly in that first debate. We have three debates coming up beginning in three weeks. Can you just uh, finish up by 
uh, talking a little bit about how uh, the Trump-Hillary Clinton debates might take place uh, in the next yeah. few weeks. Well, first of all, let me say the, the debate, the, the, uh, you have to think of campaigns as a long exam. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on a college campus. But, I mean, that's really what it is. It's a gauntlet. Like, I always believed that Barack Obama, after winning the Iowa caucus, lost the New Hampshire primary five days later because people said, we're not ready to give the keys to the car to a guy who's, you know, a few years out of the Illinois State Senate. We want to see him handle the whole course. And he, in fact, had to run in 50 states. Every time we thought we could close it out, we didn't. Um, and the pressure rises uh, at each stage of the process. And it culminates in these debates when this year, God knows how many tens and tens and tens of millions of people will be watching. I would suspect, you know, we're going to be up in the, in the 60s and 70 million uh, people watching. Um, and they're very consequential because Donald, the thing that's really standing in the way for Donald Trump more than anything else is the conclusion on the part of these um, college-educated voters who, who normally vote Republican white voters, uh, their their deep concern that he's not equipped to handle the presidency. If he were to show in those debates that he could, or if he allayed his concerns or their concerns, I mean that could somewhat change the dynamic of these elections. I said to a group earlier that, and and the the demands on him are less than on her because the expectations are so low. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, that's, that's a reality. Uh, we, I, I said I, I have what I call the, dan the dancing bear rule. When a bear dances, people don't say, gee, he doesn't dance very well. They say, my God, the bear can dance. So the bar is pretty, pretty uh, low for him. But I, let me just say this. And, 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 you know, the fact that he says that he's not going to prepare for them because he doesn't want to impede his spontaneity is... That's probably the best news Hillary Clinton could have because these are really, really pressureful. Now, I will tell you about uh, just I'll finish with a story of, uh, of um, 2012 since we're close to Denver. Uh, a, a town, I always get the, the, the chills when I arrive there remembering what that first debate was like. But, you know, we when, when that, I think the debate was on October 4th, and I had circled that date in red on the calendar months earlier when it was announced because the history of presidential debates are that an incumbent president tends to do poorly in the first debate. And it makes sense. First of all, they haven't debated in four years. In 2008, uh, Barack Obama debated Hillary Clinton 25 times before she ever, he ever got to the general election. And she was a pretty formidable sparring partner. Um, this time he hadn't debated in four years. And he hadn't had anybody sit this close to him on a stage and get in his grill and uh, challenge him. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was worried about that, the syndrome, the, the first debate syndrome for a, an incumbent president. Um, and we, we, and none of our preps went particularly well. John Kerry played Mitt Romney, and he got the better of uh, the president a lot. And he got, more, more than anything, he got under his skin, and the president was constantly wanting to defend, and we were encouraging him not to engage in that way. But we just had miserable prep sessions uh, and to the point where it was frightening, you know, uh, going into that debate. The night before the debate, um, we had a prep and 
uh, he and all when it was done, everybody said to me, "You got to go in and talk to him," which tells you how much esteem my colleagues had for me. <laughs> and uh, I went in, and I um, and and he said, "Well, that that went pretty well, I think." And I, I said to a group earlier, I had to make a quick decision as to whether I wanted to. Um, whether I wanted to do the easy thing or my job. Um, so I decided to do my job, and I said, well, not really, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and um, I've known Barack Obama now for almost 25 years. Um, uh, he, we had an exchange that uh, was unlike any we had ever had before, and he used language that I would have to charitably describe or tactfully describe as unpresidential. And he stormed out of the room, and um, we got to Denver. And I, I mentioned we, we were prepping in Henderson, Nevada, which was sort of ground zero for the housing crisis. And as we drove up to the hotel where we were prepping, and we would create sets that were identical to the sets that, uh, where the debates were being held. We want to create the, the goal is to create the exact environment that you're going to face so as not to be surprised when you uh, arrive. But as we drove up to the hotel, we saw all these houses that were up for, you know, that were uh, foreclosed and brown lawns. And it was like the worst possible psychological image, you know, as you're preparing. And um, when we got to Denver, uh, I, uh, David Pluff and I went in to uh, talk to the president and give him a, you know, add a boy and go get him and all that stuff. And he just looked at us and said, let's just get this over with and get out of here which is not what you want to hear when... <laughs> so the following debate, you know, now we, we, the debate was bad. He got off the stage. He, you know, you don't know when you're on the stage. He got off and said to his photographer, oh, that was solid, I think. Um, which, and the photographer went sheet white, you know, when he said that. <laughs> and I went into the spin room and where all the reporters were and just got the living daylights beaten out of me. And I get back in the car and um, now the president's back at the hotel, and his body man says, hey, the boss wants to speak to you, and he gets on the phone, and he says, you know, I'm looking at my iPad, and it seems like the consensus is we didn't have a very good night. <laughs> so I say, well, that appears to be the consensus. <laughs> and then, you know, it, it seeped in at, over a few days that it was a disaster, and... Um, and he took full responsibility for it, but now we couldn't, we had to have a good second debate, and we got to Williamsburg, Virginia, which was where we were practicing for the second debate, and he was very sharp um, for the first couple of preps, and then Kerry kind of tuned up his attacks, and the president went right back to some of the bad habits, and we sort of had to do an intervention, you know, with him the next day, and a few of us talked to him, um, and he said, and you know, the thing is, Debates are not a free-flowing exchange of ideas. What they are is theater, and you have to go in knowing what you want to say, what point you want to drive, what you're going to say in the answer to every question. You need to be, have absorbed that, and he resented that. He, he, he thought it was uh, demeaning to the process and to people, and he said, I'm trained as a lawyer, you know, and I'm used to arguing fact. So he said, forget that. Uh, that's not what this is. And, and he knew it, you know, because he had debated before and done well. And um, he said, uh, do you ever see the movie Tin Cup? And we said, yeah. And he says, well, you know, Kevin Costner, he's, he's like slicing the ball and he can't, 
and, his, and he's all messed up in his caddy. He says, well, here's what you do. You, it was Cheech from uh, Cheech and Chong. Since I'm in Colorado, I feel that's relevant. Uh, and uh, and he, uh, he said, he, his hat, he, he, you know, he said, wear your hat like this and do this and put this sleeve up and put a T in your left pocket and you'll, you'll be fine. So he did all those things and he hits the drive straight and true. Uh, and he said, that's where I'm at. I'm just, my, my head's not right for these. I just got to get my head right. So we actually gave him a tea to put in his pocket to take into the debate with him. But he came back from that session and he said, give me an hour. And he came back and he started absorbing all this stuff. And uh, when we got to the locker room in, uh, in uh, New York, it was at Hofstra, um, he called, this time he called us and he said, we're going to have a good night. I, I, I feel we're going to have a good night. But he, he knew that because he was prepared. He knew exactly what he was going to do when he got on that stage. I think that Hillary will prepare. She's, very, she's a very um, tenacious debater. She's a very um, uh, a prepared debater. Um, and the thing that will be interesting is how do you prepare for a guy like Trump? How do you prepare for a guy who, who can say anything and who's really in, who's going to try and unsettle her to the extent that he can do without looking like he's out of control, which would uh, wreck his other problem? On the other hand, for Trump, this notion of going in unprepared is completely foreign to me as someone who's prepared people for presidential debates. Uh, I just, I don't know. I, I think it's a really risky strategy. And he tells himself, well, I got here by being spontaneous. Um, but there may be limits to spontaneity, and we're going to find out, I think, starting on September 26th. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, David Axelrod. <clears throat> On behalf of the college, I'd like to mention that everyone here should watch Washington Weekend Review, which uh, Gwen Eiffel will host, and it will be taped here Friday afternoon, but you can watch it at 6 o'clock on your local PBS stations. Very exciting event. Thank you very much.